Hi, and welcome to Health, Wealth and the Pursuit of Happiness, a podcast that will empower you to live a more inspired life and find real freedom. Each episode, Mark Dale Mazer and Aries Jimenez discuss best life practices, covering topics ranging from health and well-being, to true wealth and our relationship to money, to understanding what real freedom and happiness really is. They provide tools and a system for helping you live a balanced, authentic life in complete harmony with your mind, body and soul. Greetings and salutations to all our listeners in podcast land. I'm Mark Dale Mazur, your co-host of Health, Wealth and the Pursuit of Happiness. And today, I am very excited to bring you a unique episode related to our health series. Unique in that, number one, I'm going solo without Aries, and that's because I'm on the road. And number two, I'll be speaking with our very first out-of-town guest as a traveling podcaster. Our interview today is with a friend and colleague of some 25-plus years, and until recently, I did not know to the degree that he had been challenged and suffered from this particular affliction. But upon learning more about his journey dealing with this, and then overcoming it, I was so inspired that I decided this would make a great episode with a great lesson in hope, determination, and resolve to never quit on your dreams and to live the life you've always wanted to live, which, my friends, is at the very epicenter of this podcast and the work that Aries and I are doing in the world today. This gentleman, Larry Stein, has led two lives, and you'll hear about both of them in this podcast. The first was a life of frustration with stuttering, in which he compromised his career and nearly his life. Because the initial career path he chose as a CPA was all predicated on one thing, finding a job that didn't require him to talk. So he worked as a tax specialist at two major CPA firms and understandably hated every moment of it. Then starting in his mid-50s, his second life began. And here he faced his stuttering head on and then at the tender age of 57 triumphed to become a successful investment advisor, really living a life that it had exceeded his wildest dreams. A life doing what he loves, mentoring other people who stutter, and giving speeches on both investing and overcoming challenges. Since then, Larry has been interviewed in such publications as the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. In fact, just recently he started his own blog, FacingYourChallenges.com, which I would highly recommend checking out in our show notes. But before we begin the interview, here's a quick note on stuttering. About 3 million people in the U.S. stutter, and they do so silently in jobs that don't require much talking. Research suggests that after the age of 10, only about 5% of people who stutter actually triumph over the issue. This fact, I think, makes Larry's story all the more remarkable. In his story, you're going to learn how Larry creatively sought not so much initially a solution, but simply a way forward. And there is a great lesson here for all of us. And just through that way forward, one step at a time, he ultimately found his cure and solution. 
I hope that you will find his story as inspirational as I have. And so with that, I enthusiastically bring to you Larry Stein. Larry, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. And I look forward to you sharing your story with the listening audience. And a good story it is. So let's begin. I've given our listening audience a bit of a background on you in the introduction. And so let's just roll right into sort of a little bit about your background growing up, where you're from, and sort of what was experience like in those younger days. Well, I grew up in Highland Park. That's in the North Shore of Chicago. It was a great place to grow up. We were on a street. It was a dead-end street until I was at the age of 12. So we just played outside all day. And the friends that I had there are pretty much my best friends even still, even though one lives in Scotland and one lives in Los Angeles. We continue to talk and we're going to get together again. The three of us, we're going to meet in LA next year. Nice. And it's like time never stopped. Yeah. And then you have siblings, correct? And I've got an older brother, an older sister, and my mom and dad passed away decades ago, but we had a nice household and I was very fortunate for that. Yeah. So one of the interesting things about your background is that you had some challenges, even at an early age, that I would imagine sort of came about through just social interaction and the like. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. So believe it or not, about 1% of this country stutters. And I'm one of that 1%. And when I was younger, it was very severe at times. Fortunately, I was a real good athlete and really big for my size. So, so that was always a place for me to succeed. But talking was often really, really difficult. And my mom took me to speech programs, the finest there is, at Northwestern University, and then University of Chicago. And frankly, I failed at both. Not a poster child for that, but it was very difficult. When it began, I really don't remember, supposedly four or five. My mom told me that I never talked as a little kid until I talked in full sentences. So that was kind of unusual, and I never talked till the age of four. So there must have been something wrong there. Now we can't keep you from talking. (laughs) At least on this podcast. And supposedly my dad stuttered when he was a kid, but he grew out of that. When he always thought that I would grow out of it, I did not. But he always encouraged me to just get out there and talk. And of course, talking is the most difficult thing there was, but he was right. He was exactly right. And that's, I wouldn't say I overcame stuttering because after stuttering for 50 years, I'm not sure you ever really can overcome it. But what I call it, I say I triumphed over it in that I can say whatever I want to whomever I want, whenever I want. And that is quite a change from my previous life. Yes, for sure. So as you were kind of moving out of your childhood into your teenage years, and into adulthood. How did you sort of continue to progress from a social standpoint and into the work world? And what was that experience like for you? Fortunately, I had friends and that was good. My old friends continued to be my friends. And in college, I met my wife. We ended up moving next to each other senior year in college at University of Illinois. Our doors were 
just about adjoining. That's how close they were, like three inches away. And the funny part is, so like I said, about 1% of the country stutters, but you probably don't even know anyone, do you? No, I don't. And most people don't. And the reason is we're all in hiding. We're all in hiding. We'll maybe make a little small talk, but we don't talk much. And we avoid whatever situations we possibly can. Here's how much I avoided. My wife, then my girlfriend, so we had probably known each other three months or so, and one of her friends was doing a marketing project, and she needed a narrator for the project. And my girlfriend said, oh, why don't you use Larry? And her friend said, Susan, he stutters. And she didn't even know that. Wow. That's how much I hid it from her. And that's how much I would hide. But if you, you know, got me in a situation where I had to talk, I remember being in high school and a McDonald's opened near our high school. That was our big thing. So we went to McDonald's. I went to McDonald's with a friend and I had to order food maybe for the first time on my own in a restaurant. That's in high school. And I turned to my friend and I asked him to order for me. He said, you can do it. And it probably took minutes to get out my order, but I would just hide wherever I could. The unfortunate thing is when you become an adult and you get in the work world, it's very hard to hide. Nowadays, you can. You have email. You can be a computer coder. You have a lot of, a lot of people who stutter go into computer coding, it seems. Yeah. Some actually even become speech therapists because it's much easier to talk with a person who stutters. And that's actually the term, person who stutters. Well, I think that's the appropriate, really, framing for it. It's not who you are. It's just something that you deal with. And so you'll see in the literature, PWS, which I didn't even know it was until about a year ago, and that's person who stutters. Because not only did I hide from stuttering, I hid from the stuttering world too. And there are a number of organizations out there doing great things. Yeah. So interestingly, you got through your teens in that way, but you made a very interesting comment about the ability to be in a position where you didn't have to speak. And how do you do that if you're going into business and you're going into the business world? So when you and I were just chatting about this podcast and the opportunity for you to share your story, to bring some hope for people, not only with this, but that might be facing any kind of challenge for that matter, is that you actually made a career, I don't want to say change, but you took a career direction away from what your real passion was because you didn't think that you could succeed in that other field as a result. So tell us a little bit about that. That's really one of the most important things to get out of this discussion we're going to have is that I compromised my career and total love for the stock market. I remember my dad, after dinner, he would go into our living room, sit on a big yellow chair in the corner, and he would look at the stock market pages. And in those days, those were newspapers. Yeah. It was the Sun-Times. I actually was the Chicago Daily News on the weekdays and the Tribune on the weekend. Yes. So the Chicago Daily News, and I would see him, and I always wanted to be with my dad. He was a great guy. And I one time looked behind him, and I said, what are you looking at? And he told me, that's the stock market tables. And so I began asking him questions, and we began talking about it. And soon he suggested that I 
read up on it. So they didn't have the internet then. So I went to the Highland Park Library and began reading books and looking at Value Line. And by the time I was out of high school, I probably read just about every investment book that was there in the Highland Park Local Library. Not that there were that many then, there are many more now, but I really did read them and we'd even go on vacations and I'd take books with and I would take articles and that kind of thing with. This was what I really loved. And in preparing for college, I just felt that I couldn't talk well enough to get into the investment field. Were you talking more on the client side? Was it more from a business development standpoint or a sales standpoint? Or was it more just like what role did you see yourself ideally in in those early days? I had wanted to be an analyst because I thought that way I wouldn't have to talk much. Which makes sense. But in those days, so here's another problem being a person who stutters is that you don't ask questions. Oh, yeah. You don't ask questions. So now... So you have questions and you know people that have the answers that could guide you along, but you're reticent to do that. You're not. Asking a question is even harder than regular conversation. It was brutal. Even being at the kitchen table and asking for ketchup. Interesting. Really, really a traumatic thing. Have you ever thought about, not to get off track here, but just curious, we can come back to it if it's even relevant, but what is it about a question, do you think, that makes it that much more difficult You're asking something of someone. And one thing that a stutterer does is they'll substitute out words. So as a stutterer, you are, at least I was, consumed with how am I going to say the next phrase, the next word. And you're anticipating difficulty in saying a certain word. So you're constantly thinking ahead and anticipating problems. And that's part of the conundrum. And so if you're asking a question, it's more difficult to substitute words. And you're putting yourself on the spot. Whereas the easy thing is just not to talk at all. You can point. That's a little easier. There's so many things that you would think, well, of course, you just ask a question. Or you just but no. So my dad had a broker and I would call him up once in a while to make trades. And that was a very traumatic thing for me to make that call. He was in downtown Chicago and very nice guy. I asked him finally, I think before I was entering college, maybe, maybe I was in college, maybe I was in toward the end of college. I asked him how I could get a job in the field. I think it was before college. And he said, well, you can be a broker here in Chicago, but there's really no analysts here in Chicago. That's all out in New York. And that may have been true, but later I met people who were analysts in the field. It was probably maybe just beginning to migrate here. I mean, anybody in the business needs analysts. Yes. Why not have them locally? Yes. So I actually did meet a couple analysts who were in Chicago decades later, but I just never asked a question. In fact, I think there was an analyst community regular meetings for that. That's how much there was. But I was only comfortable asking so one person. <laughs> one person. And that person, unfortunately, did not have the answer about the analyst community. And so that's all part of the challenge of being a person who stutters and the whole situation. Wow. Well, that really expands 
the sort of field of challenges that is facing a person that stutters. It's enough that you can't necessarily maybe communicate as clearly as you want, but to be able to almost change your whole approach to communicating, which is obviously compromising some of the most important parts of communication, which is asking questions. There were times, maybe weeks, that I barely said a word. And, and so given that, my dad suggested that I go into accounting. I was good in numbers. I was already very interested in the business field. I was 12 years old reading Business Week, and that sounded like a good idea. I didn't know what accounting was, but that sounded like a good idea because I wouldn't have to talk much. Well, the reality was I had no interest in it. Even though you are a CPA, is that correct? I majored in accounting. I got a CPA. I have I a thought. master's in tax. Wow. You've got all the academic credentials you need, but. <laughs> <laughs> I hated school. I hated grad school. I hated working in the field. I worked at two of the top firms in the country. I worked at Deloitte and Grant Thornton. So that was your job right out of U of I? I was a tax specialist at Grant Thornton, yeah. Okay. Did you get your master's at U of I as well? I got my master's at night at DePaul. Oh, okay. While I worked part-time at Laventhal Horwath. Wow, I remember those guys. Technically, I guess part of the big eight back in the day. Maybe 10, maybe 10. Or group B as they call it. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> wow, that's interesting. So you went how long into the accounting career before you made your move? I worked at both firms about a year and a half, two at the most. And your shift to what I assume was communications as a sort of broad field to be in, is that correct? Right, and so that was very difficult because I really didn't know what I could possibly do. And truthfully, I kind of sunk into a very deep depression. How old were you then? Probably 26 or so, something like that. By that time, we were married. We were talking of having kids. And I didn't know what I could possibly do. I had no idea. And it took me a while. I finally learned of a field that was called investor relations, and I got a very nice job at a big company called NICOR. Never heard of that. Northern Illinois Gas. Oh, that NICOR. NICOR owns Northern Illinois Gas. And I worked for a wonderful guy. In their like investment relations department sort of thing? Right, investment relations department. And I worked for a wonderful CEO, Dick Klein, who I've kept in touch with, and just a remarkable guy. And I became more comfortable speaking. So the more I got out there and talked, just like my dad said when I was a kid, I became more comfortable speaking. And then from there, I became a consultant. So I was working with CEOs and CFOs of publicly traded companies. And I remember when I interviewed for the job, they gave me all kinds of writing tests and I could write and I had five years of experience in the field and working for terrific people. And the head of the company, Ted Pincus, who's no longer with us, called me up. It was like 9.30 at night. And he said, I hear you're great. I want to offer you a job. And he's going through the requirements of the job, telling me about it. And I said, I don't think I can do this. He said, why? And he's the guy who basically invented the field. I sort of had that impression. This was somewhat of a figment of his yeah. imagination. He invented the field. And he said, why? And I said, well, I stutter. And he goes, 
yeah, I know, I understand. He said, you'll do well. You'll have some difficulty at first maybe, but once the clients get to know you, you'll be fine. And I had to think it over. I mean, I was gonna turn down this great opportunity, probably 50% higher salary, somewhat of a prestigious place, and I was gonna turn it down. So I'm curious, you were consulting. Was Ted one of your clients? When you said you were doing the consulting work? He was head of the company. Okay, and the company, so when you said you were doing consulting, you were not an employee of Ted's at that point in time, obviously. First I was at NICOR, and then I took the job at his company. Right, but you went directly from NICOR to him. Correct. Okay, what was happening at NICOR that was safer than what you thought would be happening though at FRB? Well, I wouldn't have to talk so much. Okay. Did he agree with you on that? No, he disagreed. He said, they'll get to know you and you'll be fine. As it turns out, he was absolutely correct. And I had wonderful client relationships. And doing that job brought me along to much better speech. Not perfect, not to where I am today by any means, but I finally learned how to begin to communicate with people. Right. And of course, really foundationally, the quality of your work, the advice you were rendering, and the relationships you were building were of great value. I mean, your clients had to clearly experience the value regardless of the occasional stutter or whatever the case may be. And so I'm sure that really proved to be the case for you and reinforced how important all the other stuff really is in succeeding out in the business world. Yes, so I made it a long way but there were still some things that you or others who do not have a speech problem would not believe would be such a problem. So making a phone call to a new person, the hardest thing was introducing myself. For the first time. For the first time, when a person doesn't know your name. And worse yet, when they reach out their hand to shake your hand and they say, what's your name? There's no harder question to ask. And we'll talk about that soon. Yes, we will. I know we will. So, and that, by the way, for everyone listening, is where Larry and I met each other, is through that very firm. So, you were, I don't remember your title, but you remember Ron Millman in the firm. Ron, I think he was one of the account executives, and that's how I got into the firm, because his wife and I served on the same board, and she said, oh, my husband works for this firm that does annual reports for small publicly held companies, newly minted publicly held companies. And at the time, that was a specialty I had. And so Ron hired me and that's how I got into FRB, Financial Relations Board, which was frankly for me personally in my professional life was one of my highlights. And working with Ron and that's, I don't remember the other, I guess he was an account executive at your equal that introduced you to me. And I think it was on Big Apple Bagels. I remember Michael Rosenbaum suggesting that I contact you. Okay, that's how it came about. To do an annual report. And that was our first encounter. It was. And now we've become best friends (laughs) over the years. And we had a lot of great times together, did we not? (laughs) We made it a lot of fun. (laughs) Really did, yeah, that was wonderful. So you progress through this period of time. How long were you at FRB? 10 years. And. I remember having a conversation with you, probably casually over lunch or something, where you shared for the first time, I didn't know this, I just thought you were a a great writer and you probably were a communications major (laughs) in journalism, who knows what, really knew and understood 
the investment world and public companies and all that kind of stuff and the public markets. And then you shared with me that your real passion in life was actually investments and the stock market and this and everything, which I never knew. And something in that conversation, you may have even said that you felt maybe ready to kind of move into that new chapter of your life where you could actually do the very thing that you kind of weren't able to do up to this point. So share a little bit what was going on inside as you were kind of moving towards that shift in your career. I had a great experience at FRB and I really enjoyed the clients. I loved working for Ted, but I knew, particularly after Ted retired, I knew that this wasn't going anywhere and that what I really wanted to do was get back to my passion. And I thought that I was maybe ready to get into the field and try and make a career out of that. When I was younger, in between my two accounting jobs, I took a job at a small investment firm. and A well-known name? Yeah, not a well-known name. And my speech was, in those days, so bad, I just couldn't pick up the phone. I just couldn't pick up a phone. It was a non-starter. It was that much of a fear. It must have been a gutsy move. I mean, just to put yourself in that position. Well, I thought I could maybe do it. I couldn't. In reality, I could have if I had the mindset that I grew up with, that I grew to have, I should say. And that we're going to talk about. And that we will talk about, yeah. So you're in your late to mid to late 40s, I'm guessing, as you're kind of moving towards this new career path. And you had an opportunity with a boutique financial services firm. Yeah, and you introduced me to. Yeah, and so that's where you made your switch. And for you, you seem to consider that a real turning point, obviously. That was a huge turning point for me. Just, I was so excited to have this opportunity and I gradually became more and more comfortable. Fortunately, when I was in investor relations, I had the opportunity to make some phone calls to people I didn't know but this would be more phone calls. But for the most part, I didn't have to do those kind of very difficult things like phone calls or introduce myself that much. And so that was okay. It was just a wonderful opportunity to get back in the business and it just felt great. But I knew that wasn't what I really wanted to do. What I really wanted to do was create my own firm with the type of business operations and ethics and all the things that go into making something yours. Yeah, uniquely yours, your own brand. Uniquely yours. Reflecting who you truly are. Right, and so I had gone through two firms and I kind of saw what I wanted it to be and I created that firm. And that first year I was so excited. I just felt on top of the world and creating this new enterprise. And after a year, I sat back and I realized, okay, so I've done all these groundwork and everything looks great and sounds great. But the reality was I had very few clients, not enough to make a living. By that time, I was 55. I had had my own firm for a year. And I had one son probably just going to college. This is now, we're talking 2000, 
and 11. So I had one son who had just finished private college, another one going to private college. And if I didn't get some more clients, it was going to be lights out pretty soon. And so I recognized that I had to really not only improve my speech, but be more comfortable getting out there and meeting people and being a more effective communicator. It wasn't that I had to be perfectly fluent all the time, but I did have to be a more effective communicator because now I wasn't just setting up the company and being an analyst. Now I had to actually get some business. It was going to hit you in the pocketbook. Yeah, and it could force me out of the business within a year. So I had to get creative. Fortunately, before that time, I was asked to be the lay president of a very small nonprofit, probably because no one else wanted to do it. And I almost turned that down too. And then I said, okay, I'll do it. So here I am, I don't know, I was in my early 50s. I don't think I'd ever led a meeting before. I'm leading board of director meetings, 15, 20, 25 people. Frying pan to the fire. Yeah, and I'd never really done that before. And that was a real adjustment. I mean, you have to understand that these speaking situations that you take for granted that are nothing for you and hundreds of millions of people, every little step is a huge leap of fear to a person who stutters. And so one thing that happened very interestingly, once in a while I would have to give a little speech, you know, whether it be for our annual meeting or for a program we would have. And it hit me after one board meeting that, you know what, I think I speak better when I public speak. For some reason, I'm much more comfortable public speaking than conversing. Maybe it's because I don't have anyone interjecting at the time. It's not conversational. The floor is my own. I'm looking out at 100, 200 people, but I'm much more comfortable doing that. And it occurred to me, and I'll never forget that moment. It was right after a board meeting, and I'm walking out the door, and I said, why don't I just public speak all the time? It sounded crazy to me, but it was time for crazy. It was your aha moment. (laughs) That was one of many. And as a person who stutters, you're always looking for that aha moment that all of a sudden the light will come on and people always ask me, what was your moment where the light came on for you? And the truth is, there were a lot of lights, but each of those aha moments just led me to another phase of my journey. There was no solution. And particularly after stuttering for 50 years, it was so ingrained in me. It was my life. It, for many years, it dominated me, consumed me. But I had to find a way forward on this. Even though there wasn't a solution, there's always a way forward. And that's become one of, the, one of my little rallying cries. Yes, yes it is. There's always a way forward. Yes. And so from that moment, I was determined to relearn how to speak. I literally thought that I had to throw away how I talked. 
It was so fraught with so many bad habits. As a person who stutters, you collect habits. And I had 50 years of destructive habits collecting in me and destructive thinking. And so I thought if I could learn a totally different way of speaking, that maybe this would be it. And so I would watch broadcasters and mimic them. I'd watch public speakers and mimic them. And I would watch the Today Show with Matt Lauer. And yes, he's come into some unfortunate things, but Matt Lauer kind of saved me. I began mimicking Matt Lauer and how he phrased, how he talked, how he gestured, how he paused. And I still find myself doing Matt Lauer. I still find myself doing Matt Lauer. The other guy who I liked mimicking was Bob Woodward of Woodward and Birdstein fame. He would be on talk shows once in a while. And he had this very... That's a very unique style about him Unique style, this very calm, kind of slow way. And I thought, I can adopt some of that. So when I would be public speaking, I would sometimes do a little Bob Woodward too. And I would sometimes see, so how long could I pause without losing the audience? And I would be up there and I would literally play with the audience. I would play games. Because the one thing as a stutterer, you are so rigid. You are so fearful of the next word being a terrible block. And my thought was I had to do the opposite to break these things because they were so ingrained. There was a great episode of Seinfeld. George Costanza walks into the coffee shop. Jerry's sitting there and he's all flustered. He goes, Jerry, nothing has ever gone right for me. Everything I do is wrong. Everything I thought is wrong. And he's all flustered. He goes, that's it. I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to do the opposite of everything, everything I ever thought about, everything I ever did. I'm going to do the opposite. And Jerry said, well, if everything you've ever done is wrong, the opposite must be right. (laughs) I remember that. You remember it now. Yes. Yes. (laughs) The opposite must be right. Everything opposite. He does everything opposite. He gets the girl. (laughs) It all worked. He gets his job with the Yankees. He insults George Steinbrenner right to his face and he says, hire this man. And that's what I began doing. I began doing the exact opposite of every thought I had. What does that mean? So, like I said earlier, when you are a person who stutters, you're always thinking of, oh no, I'm going to come to this word, I'm going to have a problem. And you're going to substitute that word. I decided if I substitute, that in a sense is giving into the fear I said, I am not going to substitute. I'm, I'm never going to substitute. So I'm not going to give in to that fear. My foundation was, was by that time, I had created my new way of speaking. I had practiced it a ton by myself. I looked at everything as a hierarchy of levels. So I always want to do everything from the easiest on up. And so I relearned how to speak. And I would just practice it on the easiest people I could and just keep going up that hierarchy. And I thought maybe that would do it. And it did to some extent. But then I came face to face with another reality. And that is 50 years of stuttering really messed me up. 
in that I had collected so many destructive habits, not only in speaking, but also in thinking. Habits like anticipating problems, habits like substituting words, habits like hiding, habits like fearing a person coming up to me that I didn't know and asking my name. So many different things. And again, stuttering is such a a huge monolith. Just like I broke up speaking into a hierarchy of steps, I broke the emotional side, the mental side, into a hierarchy of steps. So I found that talking to little kids was the easiest thing for me to do. And so when I would try and do something, I would begin with little kids. Unfortunately, my kids by that time were grown up. Then my wife, that was the next easiest. And I would just go up the hierarchy, situation after situation. And so, for example, in doing the opposite with a person coming to meet me, so rather than having this fear increase that I'd have to talk, or even worse yet, that I have to introduce myself, which was the worst, I would imagine, and this will sound a little funny, I would imagine rays of warmth coming from their face and a smile coming in their face, and I would smile too. And I would feel this warmth emanating from them. So I was just creating this whole- Different reality for yourself. Different reality, yes, for myself. And I would do that for a lot of different things. That dissipate the fear? What did it? It flipped my emotion into an opposite pose. Everything opposite. So what do you think the opposite of fear is in this example for you? The opposite of fear and avoidance is I would walk toward them. That's the opposite of walking away and hiding. And rather than fear, I would feel this inviting warmth from them and that I would smile at them too. So I'm doing the opposite in every, I am feeling a different feeling from them, an opposite feeling from them. I'm projecting an opposite feeling toward them and walking toward them rather than walking away. Right. Do you think that that feeling was actually love, acceptance, compassion? You've used the word warmth, which is kind of a feeling, but I just wondered to kind of put it up, fear is probably, if not the number one most intensive, negative, low vibrational emotion that we, I mean, it just stops everybody in their tracks. And the stuff that emanates and reverberates on a domino effect behaviorally based on fear, the thinking that it results, I mean, it's unbelievable, epic-like effect on people. What's the opposite, you know, from an epic Effect. So I just wondered if it was like more of a love thing. It's somewhat of a love, but I would just picture in my mind just this warm person coming at me, very inviting, even if they weren't. And I would feel that way toward them. Both were total opposite things. And by doing everything the opposite, that's how I began chopping away at these fears that I had and these destructive habits that I had. And you're doing all this in like a nanosecond, so to speak. Yeah, Yeah. I'm doing it in real time. But I'm planning, okay, so I have this situation. In this case, it's a person coming toward me. What am I going to do 
that's totally opposite. I'm going to change the reality. And that's what I did for that. Yeah. How long did it take you either in number of actual circumstances before you actually sort of got that down where you could actually just do it in each situation as it arose where it became a little bit more of that new habit of thinking? I think it was probably weeks or months, something like that. But there were so many different things I had to work through. Making a phone call, picking up the phone was so difficult. You have to pick up the phone. They answer the phone. Your blood pressure goes through the roof. And then you have to say something. You should introduce yourself, but that's hard to get that speech going to be able to get to that because that's the hardest thing to do. And just every little thing. So did you take a baby step on those? That was a little different than just immediately coming out with who you were. Yeah. So absolutely everything I did was in baby steps. So what was like an example of a couple of baby steps with the phone calls? So with phone calls, I would call close friends. To kind of warm you up? Yeah. Literally. Yeah. And I would kind of practice how this was going to go. I would do it with close friends or with my kids, whatever. And then I just moved up the chain. I would call lesser friends. I would call hotels and ask them things. I would be introducing myself to hotel employees. They didn't care what was my name. I was just asking them, do you have a room? Do you have this? Do you have that? You know. And here I am introducing myself to 800 number people. You know? Right. <laughs> and they're going, <laughs> they're probably on the other side of the phone. Going, and I would just do this. I would call restaurants. I would call stores. And I'm introducing myself. I'm asking about a hammer. I'm introducing myself <laughs> first. Everything it's brilliant. Was in, it's brilliant. Everything was in very small steps. I took this huge monolith stuttering and broke it into the smallest steps that I possibly could. And I didn't move on to the next step until I felt really comfortable with that step. And then I moved on and on and on. And the last step was the thing that terrified me the most and terrifies a lot of people who started the most, which is introducing yourself. And the way that I had done this, going in these little tiny steps, is that nothing was a leap. Everything was just a natural progression to the next step. And new steps arose, of course, as I went along. But I always thought that maybe this might be the last step. So here I am, maybe 57 by now. So it's been a couple years now. And I'm working through this whole progression. And maybe it's 57 by now. And I wanted to join a new synagogue. And my wife didn't want to go with me yet. She wasn't convinced. And so I went to a new synagogue. And I was there for the first service. I knew a few people, didn't introduce myself to anyone. The second, then the third service, I said, you know what? Let me use this as a practice ground. I am going to introduce myself to every person I could find. By now, I had introduced myself to a million people who were easy situations. This was going to be face-to-face with people I don't know in an environment I don't know, everything was, you know, primed for a pretty big challenge. Much easier than a corporate boardroom, though. True. Which is good. I mean, it's part of your baby step yeah. approach. 
safer. But this was a huge thing for me. So like I do with everything, I went, what's the easiest situation to do it with in this synagogue? So I looked for faces that seemed the easiest. Very, very kind, gentle, loving people. And at first, I couldn't say my name, but I came up with a little preamble that was, hi, I don't think we've met, I'm Larry Stein. So uh, I got some speech going because the hardest word for a person who stutters is the first. Getting that first word out is brutal. And I took the easiest person, the easiest preamble I could find. And the easiest word. And the easiest word, yeah. (laughs) One letter. (laughs) One letter. No, hi, you know, two letters. Two letters, yeah. But just to get some breath going, just to get something out of my mouth. And so keep in mind that I'm walking towards someone. I'm feeling their warmth. I'm feeling those rays of sunshine. I'm feeling their love, if you want to call it that. And I did it. I did one. And then I looked for the next friendliest face. I did another. And another, another. And I just kept on doing it. And I came back the following week. And I kept doing it again. And by the third week... I was seeking out people who didn't have such friendly faces. And it all seemed to just wash over me. I felt my problem dissolve. I just felt this this warmth wash over me, this peaceful feeling. In a large sense, I had worked through the challenge. Now, I'm not a perfect speaker. If you talk to me long enough, when we're in a long enough conversation, you may hear a little stumble here and there, but that's true for a lot of people. But I'm where I want to be. Stuttering really isn't even on my radar anymore. And so now after never talking about stuttering at all, never being in that environment, now I'm reaching out to people and trying to help them with their stuttering. And I've had some wonderful experiences doing that. And part of my whole opposite framework through this whole thing was I realized that as wonderful a person as I thought I was, I was not such a wonderful person. I'm digressing now in that I was so focused on my speech that I didn't think of anyone else or anything else. It's understandable. And so now- You're sort of in survival mode on a regular basis. I was in survival mode, well put. I was in survival mode and one of the things One of my many steps was become a giver. And by doing that, again, that was opposite. By doing that, it took the pressure off myself. And so that was another one of my critical things. And so now my whole thing is to try and give whatever I've learned. So right now I'm creating a website, a blog called facingyourchallenges.com. And it's become quite a passion for me. And pretty soon we'll go live with that and maybe within a week. And I hope to reach more people. Right now I talk occasionally with some people who stutter and I help them through situations. Right now I'm working with a woman who I've never met her in person. I'm gonna be on the East Coast in a few weeks and we're talking of meeting then. And she has a very responsible job, but she stutters just like I used to. And we've been on the phone with each other for now a couple of years. We're going to finally meet. I helped another guy who was a lawyer. I helped him through some 
court thing he had to do while he was in college, and I helped him through his wedding speech, and he did great. But a lot of this is just realizing there's a way forward and breaking big problems into little, tiny, tiny, manageable steps. And I got the idea, frankly, from teaching my older son when he was a young kid how to do math problems that don't look at the math problem as such a large thing, breaking into little tiny steps. And he ended up, he's uh, an electrical engineer now. (laughs) Brilliant in math. So it's interesting how these things evolved. My main thing that I realized is that I had to break these habits. For me, it was both the physical active speaking and the mental thought process that was so destructive. I had to break those habits. I had to build confidence through these little, tiny, small steps. And then I had to make, if I really wanted to progress to where I wanted to be, I had to make a radical shift in my mindset. I had to be unstoppable. And that's what I now call my three Bs. Three Bs. Break, build, and be unstoppable. Yes, yes. Well, you've learned a lot about yourself and really a lot about human behavior and what things can help any type of challenge that any individual is going through, whether it's stuttering or whatever fear-based challenge or otherwise. What closing thoughts might you give myself, anybody else, facing some really difficult challenges that you just can't find your way through that have their basis in some form of as you referred to before, I don't want to say bad thinking, but not unhealthy thinking, unhealthy feelings, whatever that might be for people. What sort of closing thoughts would you share as a way of encouragement? That there's always a way forward. There may not be a solution, but there's always a way forward. I think it's real helpful to have a larger purpose in mind that for me, if I just focused on my stuttering, Every time I focused on my stuttering, it got worse. That's another conundrum of this. But rather, in this case, I viewed it as something I really wanted to do for a larger purpose, which was to build my investment firm. That larger purpose kept me going with all the setbacks that I was facing. It was a very important driver for me. Another thing is to think and do opposite. Don't compromise yourself giving your challenges like I did. Because I, for decades, lived a compromised career. In many ways, a compromised life. And in retrospect, if I had just addressed those challenges, faced up to them, and worked through them with these little, small, tiny steps, which I think is the only way to build confidence because confidence is so fleeting, it's so easily lost, particularly when you're trying to work through a new challenge. It's so easy to have, get that punch in the gut and give up and then I can't do it. But if you make everything into a very small progression, progression of very small, tiny steps, you can eventually get there so that nothing's a leap, that everything is just another step in the natural progression. And finally, the other thing that we 
haven't talked about a little bit is that there's such a wonderful life waiting for you. Not that you have to come up with the perfect solution, but as I began making headway and began going through these little steps, when I was beginning to gain confidence and moving higher and higher through my hierarchy of climbing my ladder, I began feeling this this wonderful feeling, like I was knocking down doors all of a sudden. I was feeling unstoppable. And I was opening myself up to this whole new world of enjoying conversations, loving conversations, loving people. My whole personality changed. And I became the real me. And that was being hidden. I was hiding it. I had to break that mold. And what you find on the other side is the real you. Wow. And what can be more meaningful and impactful in one's life than to find out who they really are? Yeah. And then live it. And live it and love it. Exactly. Wonderful. Super inspiring. Super inspiring. I was really, really thoroughly enjoyed hearing the detail of your story. I've known little bits and pieces of it like that, uh, but to hear it sort of articulated in this way and getting deep with respect to the nuances of it uh, was really wonderful. And I know that our audience is feeling the same way. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart for giving us this gift. Thank you for your gift. And if those in our listening audience want to get a hold of you, what's the best way that they can do that? Very soon, we'll have our website up, probably this week. It's called facingyourchallenges.com. Okay. Are you open to an email? I would love an email, larry at facingyourchallenges.com. Fantastic. And this whole thing really is a gift. When you look back on it, the challenge of stuttering for me was such a gift as long as I took action on it. Exactly. And the gift that I've been given, I just want to share it. So I really encourage your listeners, if they do have a challenge, whether it's stuttering or something else, if they're having difficulty facing it or working through it, I'd love to talk with them. Excellent. So please reach out to Larry. And thank you again. And we will look forward to getting back to you, our listening audience, in our next episode. Thanks, Mark. Really enjoyed it. Some of the concepts and tools used in the process of helping you discover a more balanced and inspired life are provided by the Kinder Institute, Money Quotient, and The Strategic Coach. These may be referenced throughout different episodes of the podcast, and you can learn more about each of them in our show notes at hwph.org. You can also find more information about the work Mark and Aries do at sandiegowealth.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and available directly via email with feedback, questions, and more at us at hwph.org. Thank you all for listening.